So liturgically, on this seventh Sunday of Easter, we are in between the Ascension and Pentecost. In between Ascension and Pentecost. Between the exaltation and enthronement of Christ in heaven and the giving of the Holy Spirit on earth to the church. Aesthetically, that is devotionally, prayerfully, right now we are in the upper room with the eleven and the Theotokos, that is Mary the mother of our Lord, who as scripture says, uh, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. They were waiting, they were anticipating the day of Pentecost. So we are with them right now, waiting to be clothed with power from on high. I mean, what I wouldn't give, you know, at my dinner table, we also often play pretty much every night the question game. We go around the table and we ask each other questions. And one of the questions we have pondered is, if you were given a time machine and you could witness any event in history, you know, where would you go? Usually it's something more simple than that, like, you know, what theme park do you want to go to next or something like that. But I would have loved, wouldn't you have loved when those, after Jesus ascended into heaven, those 10 days in the upper room with the disciples, with Mary, to have been a fly on the wall. Incredible. In Ascension Tide, as we are in this in-between, we are reminded that the exaltation of the Lord and the descent, the giving of the Holy Spirit, go hand in hand. In John chapter 16, Jesus says something to his disciples that at first read is quite strange. He says, speaking of his eventual ascension, he says, it is expedient for you. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The doctrine of the ascension, perhaps counterintuitively, is not the doctrine of Jesus' absence but the doctrine of his presence. Because Jesus' local absence means his universal presence in and through the church, which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Through the ascension and Pentecost, heaven comes to earth. Because what, what is heaven? You know, we can try to get our images of heaven from pop culture out of our heads, Tom and Jerry heaven. That's what's in my head growing up in the 80s in the U.S., right? Tom and Jerry heaven. Heaven is the place where God dwells. It's a simple definition. Of course, more can be said. Heaven is the place where God dwells, and God the Holy Spirit now dwells in his temple, the church. So the church is the place, the church is the people. Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the mystical body of Christ. So he has to tell the church at Corinth, 
Stop sleeping with temple prostitutes because you're the body of Christ and you're uniting Christ to a prostitute. Don't do that. That's not who you are. You've been made the temple of the Holy Spirit, so God is present with his people. And it is by the the Holy Spirit, and we have to understand this, because you know that as Christians, you're called to imitate Christ. Christ has commanded you in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how on earth are we going to do that? How are we going to actually be like Jesus? It's by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit who was given at Pentecost that we are enabled and empowered to follow Jesus and to minister in the name of our crucified, risen, and now ascended Lord. Therefore, we prayed in today's collect, do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, just before ascending into heaven, says to the apostles, again, I'll read it to you, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is one of the great commission passages and this is reminiscent. It harkens all the way back to Genesis because as Adam and Eve, God's vice regents, his representatives on earth, were commissioned to subdue the creation, commissioned to implement the reign of God, to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden out to the ends of the earth. So is the church now commissioned to embody and implement the reign of Christ, to expand the borders of the new Eden, in anticipation of the day when God will be all in all, when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We know it is by experience and by Scripture that it's not that yet. The ascension, because it can be abstract, it can be difficult to understand how it works. The ascension is the doctrine of the kingship of Jesus. The ascension means for you and for me that Jesus is king at present and that Jesus is a present king. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. So Jesus is king of heaven and earth and the church is commanded and empowered to implement the kingship of Jesus. But as we, and we we learned this in our second lesson this morning, as we in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, seek to bring the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, we will inevitably encounter opposition, will we not? Both internal opposition and external opposition. I think this is true in all avenues of life. 
Whenever you pursue something that's demanding, and perhaps you've experienced this in the spiritual life, when God is at work in your heart, and you have a zeal, a desire to be more like Jesus, to whatever it is, pray more, serve others more. What happens almost always is that pursuing those things become very difficult. Temptation arises, or maybe just a sense of apathy or fatigue when it comes to the things of God. So when we seek to become like the Lord Jesus, when we seek to be ministers that bring the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, we will inevitably counter opposition. So St. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he's writing to Christians and he says, things are not going well. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised if the advancement of the kingdom of God is met with opposition. Because as the kingdom of darkness loses ground, it's going to push back. It's going to push back. And just to generalize it a little bit more, difficulty is part and parcel of the Christian life. I think I could probably just drop the Christian part. Not to depress you, but life is difficult. It can be wonderful. But it's not, life in this present age is not going to be without struggle. Christ our Lord suffered. And he told us that we would suffer. So we shouldn't, again, be surprised. Now, of course, it, I have to say this, Christians, I'm not trying to paint myself as a martyr, certainly. Christians suffer in varying degrees. We know right now of those Christians now in the world that risk their very well-being, in some cases, their lives to worship Jesus, to proclaim the name of Jesus. So there are varying different degrees of suffering, of opposition, of persecution. But regardless, following Jesus is never easy. And following Jesus is not easy because we struggle internally and externally. We struggle against sin in our own lives and against our own hearts. We wrestle against a world, a system a mindset that is opposed to the kingship and lordship of Jesus, opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we wrestle against principalities and powers. That is Satan and demonic forces. What does Peter say? We just heard it. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, how would we live differently? How would we pray differently if we were reminded that we are indeed engaged in a struggle and in a battle? Now, I've told you uh, many times 
that where the people sit in a church, it's difficult in this building, is called the nave. And in many churches, like the one we're going to build, Bob, it, the, the, the uh, top of the nave looks like an inverted hull of a ship. That harkens back to Noah's Ark, harkens back to 1 Peter, which we talked about last week, that the church is the ark of salvation that's sailing through the waters of chaos in the world. I think sometimes we're surprised because we, we forget what type of ship the church is. The church is not a cruise ship. I'm so sorry. And we have people here who work for Disney Cruise Line, who are just like going on cruises and eating 17 times a day. I love it. I'm a fan. But the church is not a cruise ship. The church is a battleship. Joining a church, and I get this sometimes, what, what programs and services do you offer for me and my family? And I kinda, I, I, it's hard not to laugh because I'm like, we're a church plant. We don't offer anything. Maybe you can come and start something. <laughs> I'm not saying we don't offer anything, but, but you see how consumeristic that mindset is? And that's not the, the fault of the person asking. It's a mentality that the church has gone along with and fostered actively. Joining a church is, is more akin to enlisting in the military than it is, you know, signing up for a timeshare. It is. So if we have these struggles, which are germane to the Christian life, then what is our response? How do we live? We just be depressed, become nihilistic? No. What's our spirit-empowered response? Because this is not dark, and Peter gives us the answer. First Peter tells us in chapter 5 of his epistle, the response is, first and foremost, to rejoice. He says to rejoice, not in the suffering itself, of course, but that we are united with Christ in his suffering. And as we suffer for his sake, even if it's just an internal struggle of struggling against a sin or a temptation... Suffering is a sign that we belong to him, that we are blessed because the Spirit of God rests on us. And Peter's language there is an allusion to Pentecost, to the tongues of fire resting on those in the upper room. The Holy Spirit is, as Paul says in Ephesians, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So what's happening is Scripture's anchoring us in hope, that we know how the story ends. So in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, we have the Spirit, which is both a present comfort and a future hope, a future hope of glory. Second, we are to humble ourselves. Humility is foundational to the Christian life, 
for it involves seeing oneself truly in light of who God is, recognizing that God is God and we are not, trusting that he will exalt us in in due time, and being anchored by the hope that we have in Christ. Did you get that? Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is not smart people pretending to be idiots. Humility is not people who are good at sports pretending that they're not. Humility is seeing oneself truly in the light of who God is. Listen to 1 Peter again. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. Next, Peter writes, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I don't know if I've disobeyed any verse of Scripture more than that one. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You could live off that. The verb cast, the word rendered cast, is actually a participle. And it's modifying the phrase, the verb humble. Humble yourselves. So, part of humility is giving your worries to God, casting your cares on him. Now, now how do those two things relate? Because it comes down to this, this question. I'll put it this way. Who knows better, you or God? Who is more capable of dealing with all of the ups and downs of life, the obstacles, the sorrow, the pain. You or God? So underneath worry and anxiety, there can be, again, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't apply to you, great, good for you. (laughs) But underneath worry and anxiety is often an arrogance that I know better, that I need to handle this. Let that sink into your soul. He cares for you. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful and all-loving. The God who made the stars is mindful of you. He created you in his image. He cares for you. He wants to give you abundant life that can only come in him. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. He'll be with you amidst the trial and he'll reward you for your faithfulness in the age to come. Which doesn't always mean a lot to us. Because we want what we want, and we want it now. I'm such a hypocrite disciplining my kids for their impatience. Finally, and we'll we'll land the plane. Gone a little long. I guess it's normal. Finally, we must be disciplined and vigilant 
against the attacks of the devil. We must mortify our sinful passions and cultivate virtue. We must walk according to the Spirit in obedience to the Scriptures. In our day and age, I think more than ever, we're bombarded with, with images and ideologies that are diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, the packaging is subtle. So we have to be sober, we have to be mindful, we have to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are called to announce and body and implement the kingdom of God. And moreover, and thanks be to God, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. But it won't be easy. However, know this, God never calls his children to a task that he doesn't also equip them to carry out. He calls us to something, he will empower us to do it. And he will be with us when he does it. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is with us to the end of the age. And the Holy Spirit, which he gives to us, empowers us to participate in the life of Christ, a way of life marked by humility, trust, and discipline, a way of life that moves through suffering to glory, where Jesus Christ is now seated. To him be all honor, glory, and praise with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and forever.